Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome once again to My Brother's Keeper, a program about the problems and the threats faced by uh, Christian minorities uh, through the Middle East. Um, let me again introduce my two colleagues, um, Jeffrey Kaplan and Virag Lawrence. Um, we're from the Danube Institute and the program is made in conjunction with TV7. Now, today we're talking about Sudan. And I think I should turn to Jeffrey because this is a country you know well. And at the same time, it's undergone an enormous number of political convulsions in recent years, which have had serious consequences to different religions. Perhaps you could give us a quick rundown on that. Well, a capsule history of probably the most complex nation in Africa, and certainly before the secession of South Sudan in 2011, it was the most complex. It was also the largest. To preface, there was a saying when I first went to Sudan, which was in the Numeri era. It was very long ago. And Sudanese would tell you that when God made the Sudan, God laughed. And the, what they were trying to say is it is so complex, the tribes are so geographically dispersed and often hostile. The environment is not only huge, but a number of um, climatic zones and often also quite hostile. That it's a country that central government on, in a Western sense is virtually impossible. And it always has been. Um, a quick capsule history of Sudan forever is that it was primarily Christian around the 4th century with the Arab invasions of the, of the 15th century, um, the conversion to Islam became almost ubiquitous, certainly in the north, and northerners identified themselves as Arabs as much as Sudanese. Um, in the south, that's quite different, which we'll get to. But in essence, there have been a series of military coups um, broken up by brief parliamentary governments, followed by another coup. So stability is something the Sudan hasn't had a lot of. Um, in terms of the relations with Christians, there was an 18-year civil war, which um, under the Numeri regime and followed by a much more brutal regime with the al-Bashir and the turn towards radical Islamism that put the Christian communities who are primarily um, at that time from the Nilotic tribes, the Dinka, the Shiluk, the Nuer, who live in the south, in grave peril. And so the result was an 18-year civil war, which was almost completely ignored by the outside world mm -hmm. until the 1980s, late 1980s, early 1990s, when there was a discovery of a remarkable amount of oil, at which time the U.S. Congress, who had nothing known wouldn't know where the Sudan is on a map, decided that they needed human rights and religious freedom. 
So within a month of that discovery and making it public, there were over 30 bills in the U.S. Congress about religious freedom, protection of Christianity, etc., quite late. Um, the Civil War wound up with the removal of al-Bashir and yet another coup. Um, there were reforms that were posited and then another coup, and the reforms were kind of forgotten. But that's a capsule history of a country that sounds quite negative. Let me say one thing and then ask Virag maybe to take over with um, talking about the demography and that sort of thing. That as difficult as that history is, when you go to Sudan, you can't help but love it. And the reason is because of the heart of the people. They are hospitable even by African standards, and that's saying a lot. There's a kindness there, but there's a violence between the, between the, between the groups. Perhaps I should turn to you, Virag, and ask you this question. Um, as Jeffrey has explained, South Sudan, among other things, broke away. It's now an independent country. And yet that, because most of the Christians uh, lived in South Sudan, what does that leave the situation of Christians in North Sudan, or just as it is now, Sudan? The secession of South Sudan changed the demographic picture of the country. And so in our research, we are particularly concentrating on uh, Sudan, so the northern uh, part. And um, as for the demographic landscape, it has over 45 million uh, people. And uh, out of uh, these, um, the population, more than 4% of that uh, is Christians. So that means an estimated 2 million people, which is still a huge uh, Christian community, I believe. Is the rest of the population uh, Muslim or other other um, religions, for example, uh, animism? Uh, mainly Muslims. And when we are planning to do our research, it's also important to take a look at the geographic um, location of these Christian communities. And uh, we want to um, examine where the violence against them is the most common. And so we have to see that uh, it's, uh, the violence against Christians <clears throat> is uh, more intense outside of the capital city and also in those areas where uh, active military actions are uh, taking place. And to fill in a bit, the, to after the secession, um, the primary Christian concentration of, Christ of Christians in terms of numbers was obviously in the south. But today Christians in Sudan are very much an urban population. So you find them in places like Khartoum and Port Said, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the key for our research in terms of violence is in al Fasher, which is in Darfur, which we, is going to be one of the central areas of our research. And, and why have you chosen that particularly? I know there was massacres there, but perhaps mm -hmm. you'd like to go on, describe that. Because of the extreme violence there, um, for one thing, and the targeting not only of Christians, but um, to understand not just Sudan, but African tribal violence. It is very much tribal and clan-based, and religion is a marker, but it's not always definitive. So when the Darfur situation exploded, there was a group called the Janjaweed, who were a militia. And they created what might be called almost a genocide on the cheap, which is the idea that if you use mass rape as well as murder, impregnate women and then release them, the children of those women will not be recognized by 
their own tribe, the Dinka in this case, but also Nuer Shiluk, etc. And so you have, at least in their minds, eliminated an entire people because they don't recognize these children as part of their of their group. So if you don't have the means to commit genocide in the in the Holocaust sense, um, which takes organization, technology, etc., you can do it this way. And they are one of the pioneers of this, and you see it now in other areas. This is a very um, serious and horrible question. Um, but what, in the end, are the effects? In other words, what you have is people who may not be regarded as members of the tribe, but what effect does it have on their religions, where, the relig- where religion is a, is a marker between different tribes? What, what happens to those people? Well, if... The religion in in the case we're talking about, yeah. which is the actual this kind of violence, is really secondary because you're looking more at the survival of an entire tribe. Yes. Whom religion is a marker, but unlike some of the other countries we're looking at, it's not the specific target. It's a, if you will, a collateral casualty. But you say in the minds of the people who are carrying out this genocide on the cheap, mm-hmm. the these people that that tribe has ceased to exist. But in practical everyday life, there are people going around who suffer this odd loss of identity. But what impact does that have? Um, are they a new tribe in effect or, or are they members of the existing tribe which carried out the rapes? It's a good question. At that side, they won't be accepted into the perpetrator's tribe either. Mm-hmm. So they become a kind of lost people. Now, it hasn't gone as far as something your question would take generations to really answer. But there are some indigenous um, examples of the use of tradition and kind of modern creativity. So in Uganda and the Sudan, there be some of the traditional chiefs who have been really important in all this came um, invented a kind of ritual. And the ritual was a kind of combination of baptism and traditional animist ideas. And so the victims would become, in in essence, virgins again. And so it was a kind of spiritual purity. And it allowed for the children to be brought back into the group. So people are very stubborn about being eliminated (laughs) They'll always find some creative solution, and you're seeing some of this there. Um, but perhaps we should go back to Christianity itself. Well, but at the same time, we should go perhaps back to, to you, Virag, and uh, say that what what Jeffrey has just been describing is something that has particular and particularly horrible um, res- results on the women concerned. You now have a number of women, a large number in, in some cases in recent years, um, who have been raped and who now have an odd relationship with the tribe, which has, uh, members of which have raped them. Can you give us some idea of how women are responding to that and how much protection, extra protection, more protection than they had in the past, um, they are getting? Well, the legal landscape of Sudan is quite restrictive on women and girls. So, for example, Sudan is one of the just six countries uh, of the United Nations, which is not a signatory, uh, which has not ratified the um, 
the convention, which is called the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of uh, Discrimination Against Women. And so um, there is no particular legislation against domestic violence in, within the country. And uh, actually, it has a huge impact on women. And also, it, um, it has another severe problem, which is the child marriage. So according to, um, uh, to their uh, law and the, the customs, children get, can, can get married uh, from 10 so um, usually they need some kind of um, um, consent from a guardian or a parent, but it is allowed to get married uh, from the age of 10. So you have a situation in which you have both, um, in a sense, rape of an undisguised kind, but you also have with child marriage effectively rape as well. And again, I come back to the question of how people settle into everyday life with a tribe which they must regard, uh, well, one would assume, regard um, as people who have inflicted abuses on them of a serious kind, maybe continue to do so, um, and yet they are not able to turn to other people for protection very easily. Uh, Is this just a terrible endemic case of social injustice, particularly injustice against women, which at the moment, we don't seem to have any um, real solution to. So during the transitional council period, there were intentions to improve the situation of women. And there is the Arab word maharam, which means the consent of the, uh, of the uh, man, for example, to let the women uh, travel. And so there were um, intentions to um, not to have this kind of, for example, travel ban. But uh, after this uh, transitional council failed, the, these kind of attitudes, attitudes also disappeared. What I would have to say at this point is um, there were attempts, of course, by the international community as a whole um, to improve the situation. And in fact, a Sudanese president was indicted by the International mm-hmm. Criminal Court. And, uh, that, and um, I don't think there was ever, he was ever able to be brought before the bar, but nonetheless, there was that attempt. Now, um, may I ask whether or not, um, uh, instead of the entire international community, which has limited influence in Sudan, I think you would agree with that, mm-hmm. whether that community, um, we shouldn't really turn our attention to the um, Islamic world, which has its own international pressure groups, of very powerful ones, the uh, Organization of Islamic uh, it's State uh, Group, uh, the OIG, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is there some way or uh, is an attempt being made within the Islamic international community to bring influence to bear, to lighten the burden of abuse, to eliminate it ideally um, from the the women in these these situations. Because one of the factors here surely is um, predominantly the women um, are perhaps uh, going to be Christian women in this case, or is that not the case? Well, the... There was an attempt, and remember with the Sudan, um, they have a dual identity. They are, on the one hand, Arab Islamic, on the other hand, African. So in Darfur, which was the, you know, the ultimate flashpoint, there are others, Blue Nile um, province, for example. And uh, there's, there's this kind of anti-Christian violence, but Darfur is really the epicenter. 
So a, there was a group of African peacekeepers, a combination of African countries, who were in the Sudan and, or were in Darfur, and they kept the peace fairly well. But then their mandate ran out. They left in, I believe, 2021, and it all started again. So does the international community defined as the um, Arab, defined as African, defined as Western, do they have the wherewithal, the will, the, the power to project to actually go there and make peace when people won't do it themselves? Yes, they do have a, a central government. Uh, Sudan has got a government. Uh, the problem has been that it has in the past been waging a civil war uh, with the South and, and there were definitely, that was a religious war among other kinds of mm -hmm. war. So you can imagine that in the past that government was not going to be seriously concerned about the abuses we've just been discussing and you've been revealing. So now that has changed. To what extent has the government, uh, uh, there's been a coup which seemed to reverse some of the decisions of the previous administrations to take these abuses more seriously and to intervene. Is there any hope now of the international community getting that, the, the current authorities, to do something more serious? There's the idealistic answer and then there's the cynical real politique answer. And the idealistic answer is, sure, we should come and help everybody. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. The real politic answer is this. Um, when South Sudan seceded, they took with them 80% of the agriculture and water resources. They took with them 75% of the oil and 90% of government expenditures. Mm. So... If the, the, the interest of the international community, frankly, has switched, has shifted to South Sudan mm. because they're following the oil. Mm. And what happens to the rest of Sudan? Well, when I first went there, nobody knew and nobody cared for 18 years. And in South Sudan, the religious situation is? Primarily Christian and animist. And therefore, the Christian communities are not under threat, are any other communities under threat? That's on religious grounds? On religious grounds, no. But South Sudan is something that is really beyond our purview right now, and it has sure. its own issues. No, no, I understand that. But I think it's important to kind of clarify yeah. what the situation is there. Uh, so we come back, therefore, to the, to the situation that um, women, as an entire group, can find themselves lacking normal, what we would regard as normal civil and rights and human decent treatment very often. And secondly, the Christians are particularly likely to suffer from, from these circumstances. Um, and we don't at the moment have a kind of solution we can ready, ready-made solution we can turn to from the international community. And now let me ask you both, Jeffrey and you, Virag, what practical way uh, of dealing with these, of reforming these abuses do we see, particularly because the international community is now very diverse. I don't just mean diverse between governments, but there are any number of international institutions of an aid and rescue kind which exist. Do you place either of you much faith in those? I would like just shortly reflect on the pressure from the side of the international community. So, um, yeah, we could see that there are some kind of... Um, 
discriminative legislation against women, I mean, what we consider to be uh, discriminative. Yeah. Uh, but we also have to see that it is not just from the part of the government. So this kind of anti-Christian um, violence mm-hmm. is also very uh, common from the part of, for example, uh, radical Islamists. Yeah. And they uh, they tend to um, take the women for sexual enslavement. And after that, they are not criminalized if they marry those women. And uh, this kind of um, violence takes place not just within the legal landscape, but especially uh, outside of that, I believe. And I would want to add something that I think is very important and is getting lost in our discussion. Um, We're looking, I think, too much at the international community. Internally, there's a powerful democracy movement, particularly in the cities, particularly in Khartoum and Umdurman. There have been widespread demonstrations um, against abuses and against um, government ineffectuality as much as perfidy. And I think that the answer for the Sudan and virtually every other country we're talking about is very much internal. I can see that, and I, 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 that's a point. Well, we've got the, another five minutes to discuss that point, and I think we should. When we're talking of modernization, we're generally talking about economic modernization, which is important. But then we also surely are talking about the spread of communications, of newspapers, um, uh, modern communications in form of television, radio. And to what extent is a serious... Um, uh, media culture established that can bring these things to light and, and direct uh, public opinion, indeed public indignation in the society to try to to make these reforms, to extend basics, civil rights and protection against violence. Well, in this regard, I would like to reflect on, on uh, the Western media. I mean, it's, it's not uh, the, I mean, I think that it's also an important thing to examine the, what kind of um, media platforms they use and what kind of uh, freedom of speech they have in Sudan. But also it's an issue to examine the picture that we have about Sudan. And I think that it's a country which is, uh, especially from the aspect of, uh, of anti-Christian violence, um, we are not talking enough about this country. Mm. So I think that um, it's one of the purpose of our research to draw attention to the country and to the situation of Christians. And the churches themselves internationally, how much are they involved and how successful are they when they try to bring this kind of a mixture of aid and, and aid and comfort, you might say? The, it's a very mixed record. Um, during the Civil War period, there, was a, there were reports on, on such programs as 60 Minutes in the United States that um, the Christian churches were getting involved in the slave trade in Sudan. And what, what is meant by that is they, were, they thought they were uh-huh. redeeming um, slaves. Yeah. So they would give like $50 for every slave released. And they found out later that these slaves are being released multiple times yeah. <laughs> and everyone was splitting the profits. Yeah. He, my point is that it's very hard from the outside to really understand what's going on in a country as complex as this. The On the evangelical level, 
There have been evangelical churches and there have been a church outreach, but these are unregistered churches. And so church building is, is uh, needs to be registered. So a lot of these churches that were built were quite makeshift and they've been destroyed. Because they are, in fact, illegal in the because eyes of the Sudanese authorities. Illegal. Yes. Um, there are established churches, and these are fine in the urban centers. On the question, I, which is very important that you raise, this kind of media culture, um, in the urban centers, it very much exists. But you have to picture the geography of the Sudan is vast and underdeveloped and quite often um, uninhabitable. So while they share a common language in the north, which is Arabic, on the other hand, the technology makes it very difficult for internet, for the internet to reach the villages, to reach the small towns. Um, the idea, as you say, of newspapers and magazines, you can print them up in the big cities. How are you going to distribute them? Well, is not radio it's still a very important medium in this regard? It is, but it's controlled. Yes. Uh, well, again, that, that, is, um, that is something important too because the churches, for example, could presumably, not necessarily from inside the country, but um, uh, use radio and use other forms of communication. But maybe you've dealt with that. So the final, we, we come back to the situation that we have a very bad situation for Christians and particularly for Christian women that we have... In the, in, internally in the country, we have, an ex, we have important democratic movements and modernization movements, mainly confined to the cities. Um, we have outside, I would say, a sense not of despair exactly, but something close to it in the international community about having a really strong effect. So what is the final piece of advice you can give, we can give to each other, um, and to our viewers as to what they and we should do? What we should do is not is remember that the Sudan is more than just an oil, re, an oil resource, that it's a country of people who are very kind, very open, and often do not deserve the governments that they've gotten. Um, that from the outside to be able to support not only Christian churches, but the democracy movement as well, um, without interfering in their internal affairs. And Virag, the feminist movement in the West, can that do anything? I think that it's, for the, from the perspective of our research again, I think it's very important to, to go there, to do the fieldwork, to meet with those people, and to get to know their perspective and their stories. And I think that that would improve this situation, or at least it's, it's a way. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think this has been perhaps one of the more disturbing programs we've, we've had so far. You've certainly got a lot of things to discover, report on, and get back to us on when you go to Sudan. We will have other countries to look at and other problems to report on in our next broadcast of My Brother's Keeper. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.